Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, the name Bill Ayers rings a bell for people of a certain age. He is one of the icons of 60s and 70s countercultural and anti-Vietnam War movements. As a young man, he became a founder of the notorious leftist radical organization the Weather Underground. One of the group's goals was to overthrow the U.S. government. They orchestrated a string of bombings of public offices. In 1970, three members were killed when a bomb they were building exploded. Ayers became a fugitive for a time after that incident. The Ayers legacy rang a bell again in 2008 when Republicans linked him to presidential candidate Barack Obama in an effort to associate Obama with radical ideals. Subsequent investigations showed the two did not have close ties. Ayers has a long career as a teacher. He is known for his work as an education reformer. He recently retired from his position as a distinguished professor of education at the University of Illinois. Bill Ayers is the author of many books, including Fugitive Days, A Memoir, Teaching Toward Freedom, Moral Commitment, and Ethical Action in the Classroom, Public Enemy, Confessions of an American Dissident, and Demand the Impossible, a Radical Manifesto. He spoke at Impact Hub Seattle in Pioneer Square on November 1st in a conversation hosted by Northeastern University Seattle. If you are genuinely curious about what a 60s radical may be thinking about and talking about in the age of Trump, his talk will inform and possibly surprise you. My name is Peter Tennis. I am the Dean and Campus Chief Executive of Northeastern in Seattle. We're up in South Lake Union. And there's a bit of propaganda we're going to want to share. There are uh, copies of this out front. This is our brochure for our Doctor of Law and Policy program, and that is the program that's sponsoring this event. We've got Brent Musson over there, one of our star pupils in that program, a guy who's a genuine community leader. Um, I recommend this program. Take a look at it. It's really worthwhile. I also recommend very highly uh, Bill Ames. I'm looking around the room, and I think a lot of you know Bill. I think a lot of you know of Bill. I think it's a privilege to have him with us. I've known Bill Ayers for almost 20 years now, uh, and for all the things you might know or wonder about Bill, I think the most salient characteristic is he's a man with a very big heart. He's someone who cares about people very, very much. As you know, he was an actual American revolutionary, and may still be. It was? Yeah, all right. I haven't turned in my card yet. Yeah, I so you got that little star there in your <laughs> And your little column. Um, Bill is a phenomenal writer, and we've got three of his books here. You can buy a copy on your way out if you'd like. Each one of these is a terrific book. We've got Demand the Impossible, Public Enemy, which is his second memoir, and this really terrific book to teach the journey in comics. You know, Bill is known as a political leader, as a leader on the radical left. Bill's great contribution, in my opinion, is as such an exemplary teacher, as someone who for thousands of future teachers really modeled and led the way for them to be able to listen to young people and show them the kind of respect that precludes a lot of 
the bad things that he fights against outside his life as an educator. So with this, you know, we're here to have a conversation. Um, Bill's asked me to share the stage, but I'm going to try to do it very quietly. We want to have the conversation emanating from Bill and between Bill and you all in the audience. So with that, I just would like to ask you to give a, a hand for our friend Bill Ayers, and then we'll be the Thank you so much, Peter, and thank you for inviting me, and thanks for being here. Um, yeah, I, I get a little embarrassed um, with the generous introduction, and I'm reminded my, my son Malik, who's now 38 years old, but he heard me give a talk to teachers when, um, when he was five years old, and afterwards he said he thought I did pretty well, but that I went on too long, and then he asked the question, the professors get paid by the word. And I thought, gosh, how does he know that? He's only five, and we do. So I, I, I take note of the fact that this is a community conversation, and this is not the best setting for a conversation because there's a stage and because you're sitting there, but let's make it a conversation. Let's, I'll talk for a bit, but I would really very much um, prefer to have some back and forth, and, and all of it in the spirit of uh, trying to name this political moment, trying to name the moment we're living in and cringing before, and uh, trying to figure out what do we do next, what is to be done, which I think is, uh, and is there hope. Uh, I think it's something that, that uh, everywhere I go in the last six months, people are troubled and people are searching for what's next. I think we should do some of that searching tonight and we should do it together. I'm sorry that my partner of 47 years, Bernadine Thorne, is not with me. Um, but she said, oh, we both, can I tell you an intimate detail? This is elder intimacy. We've been together 47 years. We each had a hip replaced three weeks ago by the same doctor on the same day. Can you imagine? We gave the staff such a kick because they thought, God, old people, this is one way you really get close, you know, new hips. But that's why I'm kind of limping around up here, but I'm actually doing great, so is she. Bernadine is a special person, and as I say, we've been together for a long time. I'm still hoping it will work out. Um, but she, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I, we, we get harassed a lot online, and we get death threats and all that, and we have for a long, long time, so we're quite you know, inured to it. But um, last summer, we got a packet of materials in the mail sent to our home address, and one thing was that it was all right-wing kitsch. One was a t-shirt with a picture of Welch's grape juice on one side and a picture of me on the other side. And under this it said, good free radical, and here it said, bad free radical, which I thought was pretty wonderful. And then there was a bumper sticker in there, and it said, and I showed it to Bernie, and it said, Bill Ayers and his wife should be in prison. And I showed it to Bernie, and she said, his wife? Not a word about prison. I thought that was a very telling. Don't call me his wife if you're gonna put me in prison. Um, in any case, let me, let me start with the, the business of trying to say where we are, and I guess I'm gonna take off a little bit from one of the books that Peter held up, which is called The Man, the Impossible. And that came out last year with Haymarket Press. And it's something I thought about for a long time. Um, but, but I finally sat down and wrote it. And it's a very, very brief book. And it's, it's, the subtitle is A Radical Manifesto. And the motivation for writing it was that I think people like us, people I tend to hang out with, people who try to have their eyes open, people who try to stay woke, as they say, um, are pretty good at criticizing what is. We pretty much know what we don't like. We're pretty good at critiquing 
the social system and the economic system and the political system. But the question is, what are we fighting for? What do we want? And if you don't know what you want, then it's kind of derails you in the here and now. I mean, you, you have to have a vision somewhere of what you're trying to achieve. And I was, part of the motivation was thinking back 30 years ago when we hosted in our living room a conversation between Albie Sachs, the great South African revolutionary who became the chief justice of the Constitutional Court of South Africa, in conversation with Rashid Khalidi, the um, Palestinian scholar and activist. And they, they were, again, as we often are, trying to name the political moment, in that case for South Africa and for the Palestinian struggle. And Albi said, you know, at the height of the war against apartheid, we were criticized because we would take two, three days off every month and go on a retreat, a workshop, a political meeting, where we would try to say, what is it we're fighting for? And we tried to do it every month. And we tried to do it because <coughs> our, the way we were fighting, the, the tactics we used, the strategies we pursued, would all be derailed if we, were, if we didn't have a good idea of what we wanted. So to kind of name and define what we want matters because it kind of guides us in the here and now as well as, you know, gives us kind of a sustenance toward what we're trying to reach. I've often in my life been called a romantic and a utopian, and there's truth to it. I'm not an innocent romantic. I don't, and my mother was a wonderful, innocent Pollyanna. She always, I remember when I was taking care of her about 30 years ago, she'd broken her ankle. And uh, she's since passed away, but she, I was taking care of her, and she, um, she asked me kind of innocently, what's this thing I've heard called global warming? And I gave her a very simple, easy, painless response because I didn't want to scare the shit out of her. And she looked at me very coolly, and she said, well, I'm sorry I asked. Exactly. Because if you ask, you might get an answer. And if you get an answer, you might feel you have to do something. As long as her lawn was green, as long as her swimming pool was filled, why should she worry about global warming? Well, that's kind of the, the you know, a kind of standard um, response of privilege. You have to, you have to kind of open your eyes, and the, the rhythm to me of activism is the same as the rhythm of good citizenship or, or, or being a moral person. You have to open your eyes. You have to pay attention, and not once, but every day, all the time. And that can be a very excruciating and painful thing. I'll, just one example from this week. I've often said that no president should be able to bomb a country he can't find on a map. And that would lower the, the level of, um, of violence incredibly. So do you really think that Donald Trump, or maybe even many of us, could find Niger on a map? Or could find um, Mali on a map? Or even, could, I ask my students, could you draw a freehand sketch of, of Iraq? We've only been fighting there for, what, 13 years or something. Could you draw a freehand sketch with the major, major cities and the surrounding countries? Well, we don't, and we don't know how to do that because you know, privilege allows us to you know, not, not pay attention in those ways. Paying attention means, for example, noticing that we have troops all over Africa suddenly and that we, and that we weren't aware of it. That's what opening our eyes means. So the rhythm of activism always involves paying attention, opening your eyes, and being astonished, being astonished at both the beauty and the ecstasy that people are capable of, and also being astonished at the unnecessary suffering that we visit upon one another. 
It's, it's, if you get used to the unnecessary suffering, then you're in trouble. You should be astonished each time you see, each time you look out this window and see a, a gathering of homeless Americans, you should be astonished. And I want to be astonished. The first time I saw a homeless child in New York, I wanted to jump off a bridge. And after a couple of years, I saw homeless kids in New York. You know, it, it becomes the commonplace. We can't allow ourselves to become you know, softened and, 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 uh, and just kind of take for granted the unacceptable. So to me, the rhythm of activism, first we have to open our eyes, pay attention. Then we have to be astonished. Then we have to act. We have to do something. And then we have to doubt. We have to rethink. And then we repeat. For me, and when I look back on my activism and the various things I've been involved in, it's really the failure to do that fourth step that characterizes the mistakes, for example, of the Weather Underground and of SDS at a certain point. The failure to say, we don't know everything, let's rethink it, let's reimagine it, let's redo it. Um, and it seems to me that this is something we can actually put into our heads and try to practice. Pay attention, be astonished, act, doubt, repeat. And that seems to me the, the, the rhythm of what we ought to do. There's a bumper sticker that suddenly become wildly popular, but I used to see it around Chicago that I like very much, and it says, um, if you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. I like it. It, become, it became wildly popular because Heather Heyer, the young woman who was killed in Charlottesville, her mother popularized that because it was apparently the tagline on, on her uh, Facebook account. If you're not pissed off, if you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. But I've always wanted to add to that at least in the last several decades, I wanted to add to that. If you're only pissed off, you're not going to get to where you need to go. You're not going to build the society you want. And this is a tricky thing. How do we, on the one hand, allow ourselves anger, allow ourselves you know, um, impatience and, and uh, furiousness at unnecessary war, at the threat of nuclear war? Are you kidding? Those, many of us are old enough to remember when we had to dive under our desks in elementary school. Remember that? Some of you, I mean, many of you are too young, but literally at Forest Glen School in, in Glenelg, Illinois, we would have, as a five-year-old, I was taught to get under my desk, and I remember thinking, you know, well, I didn't think it at the time, but later I was so amused to think, you know, we'll get under our desks, the nuclear war will happen, and then we'll get off and be sure to wash carefully after the nuclear explosion. You know, it's madness. But we're back in that madness. And we should be, I think, appropriately furious about it. But then again, that won't take us to where we need to be. So we have to be able to balance that with some sense of generosity, some sense of love, some sense of compassion. I'm thinking suddenly of the great revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg, who was imprisoned during World War I for refusing to, to support her government in that imperialist traitors war and there's a whole bunch of letters Rosa Luxemburg's letters back and forth to her friends my favorite is a friend of hers writes to her and says Rosa we're completely confused about what to do we're rudderless without your leadership we don't know where to go what should we do and Rosa Luxemburg writes back a very stinging letter and it begins by saying first of all stop whining which I think is great advice for the left, for progressive people, for teachers. Stop whining. It doesn't take you anywhere. But then she says, my advice to you 
is to be a mensch. That's M-E-N-S-C-H, for those of you who don't speak Yiddish. And you can Google it, not now, but later, Google it, mensch. But then she says, I can't define mensch for you, except to say that a mensch is someone who loves her own life enough to enjoy the sunrise and the sunset, to enjoy a bottle of wine and a good meal with friends. But a mensch is also someone who loves the world enough to put her shoulder on history's wheel when history requires it. And my advice to you is to be a mensch, to pay attention, to, um, to work out in a daily way, both personally and with your friends, how to love yourself and love the world. You need to do both or you can't sustain yourself for a long period of time. So, demand the impossible. I took that phrase from, it comes from many places. James Baldwin said it, um, many people have said it, but where I remember it from is in 1968. It was all over the walls of Paris. And the phrase was, be realistic, demand the impossible. And what I like, I like the dialectic of that, and I like the idea that demanding the possible just gets us stuck in a framework that we've already been given. And we need to get beyond that framework. So we need to, we need to say things more dramatically, more radically, to unleash our radical imaginations. Because imagination is also a necessary part of building a struggle for social justice. If you just demand the possible, then you can just make incremental changes where they are. Think about, you know, I'm thinking about for just for a moment, the, the moments when we've actually made serious change in this country, and it's always come from fire from below, and it's always come from unreasonable people making unreasonable demands. And, you know, it's never come because a change of heart of a leader, it's never become, come because somebody suddenly woke up and said, oh, I get it. Think back, three, three presidents, think of Lyndon Johnson, who passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. But he didn't just have a brainstorm and say, this is a good idea. He actually was responding to the Black Freedom Movement, which was absolutely shaking the country to its foundations. And he was an effective politician, and he did what he did. But it came because of fire from below. Think about Franklin Roosevelt passed the most far-reaching social and labor legislation, but he was a patrician from the Hudson Valley. What made him do that? Well, we could argue Eleanor Roosevelt made him do it, but, but I think it's more appropriate to say it was fire from below. It was the labor movement itself. And then think back to Abraham Lincoln, never a member of an abolitionist party. And I'll bet you nobody in here has read his first inaugural address. Maybe some of you are historians and have read it. The first inaugural address is a disaster. That's where he genuflects in front of the slave owners and says, oh, I won't bother your enterprise. Everything's going to be good. Let's stay united. The second inaugural address is the one you read in your history books because it could have been written by Frederick Douglass. That's the one where he says, for every drop of blood brought on by the whip, we will answer with a drop of blood from the sword. My God, Abraham Lincoln, what the hell happened? Fire from below is what happened. The Civil War is what happened. And so our job, it seems to me, those of us who believe that fundamental change is necessary, is to unleash our imaginations, to think beyond what's given to us, to go beyond the debate about body cameras as a reform, to go beyond the debate about um, you know, uh, better educational programs in prisons, to go on beyond the debate about um, Obamacare versus predatory capitalism. I mean, we can go beyond that debate and we can say what we really want is universal health care. 
What we really want is a conversation about what policing would look like in a free and democratic <coughs> society, as opposed to an occupying army. Those are the kinds of conversations we want to have. But it requires us, it seems to me, to unleash our imaginations. I'm remembering Emily Dickinson, one of my favorite American poets, and her, her, her comment that um, imagination lights the slow fuse of possibility. I kind of love that. Imagination lights the slow fuse of possibility. And then I think of the great Chicago poet, Gwendolyn Brooks, who said, uh, at the, she wrote a poem at the dedication of the Picasso. Do you know the Picasso in downtown Chicago? It's a landmark. Is it a bird? Is it a woman? Nobody knows. Um, Brooks wrote uh, a dedication of Picasso. And it begins, does man love art? Question mark. And her response, man visits art but cringes. Art hurts. Art urges voyages. And the voyages that it, art urges are voyages of the imagination, where we can imagine a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. And that's what I think, um, that's what I think I set out to do, was to say, what do we really want? <coughs> One other note on that is that I take up in the book eight issues, war, um, policing, uh, prisons, education, healthcare, taxing. But you know, the interesting thing is I've been constructed for a long time in, in, in certain quarters as a far left radical, and I suppose I am. But the odd thing is I've never felt that I was out of the mainstream when it came to the main issues I care about. I've never felt that I was a, some kind of marginal um, nutcase living in a you know, barricaded room. I've always felt this is what most Americans feel. And if I can't convince, convince people, then it's, my, it's on me, it's my problem. I have to be a better organizer, I have to be a better thinker, I have to be a better communicator, I have to knock on more doors. But take the question of war and peace. Most Americans want to believe that we're a peaceful people. The fact that we're not a peaceful people, the fact that we are the new Sparta, comes as a shock every time. Niger is the current shock. We're actually over there meddling in the affairs over there, that's outrageous. But those are the kind of things, it seems to me, we have to, we have to, um, we have to kind of challenge ourselves about. So I think we're in a moment, we're in a, we're in a treacherous moment, and it's a moment I think of as a moment of movement or movement making. Because as I said, I think social movements are what change things. I don't think we need to spend all of our energy thinking about the next election cycle. In fact, in some ways, I think it's a diversion. What we really need is a social movement that can make the next election cycle inevitable. And that's more important, and that's where folks like us, ordinary folks, can actually make a difference. We can actually make a difference if we speak up and expand the public space in our workplaces, in our schools and classrooms, in our neighborhoods. Bernadine and I went to Washington, D.C. We were, this is so sad, we were planning to go to the inauguration of Hillary Clinton, and um, so sad. And uh, we were going to go um, as protesters. We, we had, with a group of people all over the country, we were going to have a peace ball the night before the inauguration. And we, had, we did indeed have a peace ball at the African American Museum of Culture and History. If you haven't seen that, you must, must, must make a plan to go see it. It's incredible. But we had a peace ball the night before the inauguration. Our plan was that everything would have been normal. Hillary in the White House, us over here with our peace signs, Normal, normal behavior. Suddenly Donald Trump is the president and nothing is normal anymore. This is, um, 
what uh, um, the scholar Jack Halberstam calls the queer art of failure. Um, you know, we had failed, and the world was no longer the same. But there we were at the Peace Ball, and we were, you know, it was a great gathering of progressive people, and it was a great, uh, you know, kind of uh, terrifying and at the same time exhilarating evening. The next day we went to the inauguration. And the reason we went is because our congressman on the south side of Chicago had tickets to the inauguration and he couldn't give them away. Nobody on the south side of Chicago wanted to go. So we took 12 of them and gave most of them to Code Pink. And then Bernadine and I went in and she, we took in a sign, a big banner, that said, say no to racism, say no to Islamophobia. And we were two of the million and a half people that Donald Trump thought he saw uh, that were actually there. And it was magnificent because we spent four hours talking to strangers. And this, I recommend it to you. I recommend to you that you talk to strangers, that you just don't talk to people who are in your club, who are in your you know, mindset, who all read The New Yorker or listen to NPR. Talk to somebody else and you learn a lot. You learn, you know, a lot of people went by this sign Bernadine was holding and they said, I agree with that. I don't agree with you, but I agree with that. So yeah, we were in a conversation, it was great. The next day, we went to the Women's March, and I'm sure some of you went to that here or somewhere. It was incredible, and I've never seen anything like it. That kind of spontaneous you know, uprising, spontaneous sign-making, all kinds of groups and collectives. My, my sister, who's two years older than me, came. She's never been to a demonstration in her life, and she's you know, 77 years old. Wow, amazing. It was incredible for her. So, it was a kind of amazing thing, and I think those of you who witnessed it or participated in it know what I mean. My favorite slogan was a group of early childhood, I'm an old early childhood teacher, a group of early childhood <laughs> educators were marching and their chant was, um, you, you know the Dr. Seuss Green Eggs and Ham? You know the rhythm of Green Eggs and Ham? So it was, don't put your hand down my shirt, don't put your hand up my skirt, don't put your hand on my rump, I do not like you, Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> I've been repeating it ever since. Um, but we decided there, and many people decided then, that we have to figure out ways to, um, as, as the concept of the public is being eclipsed, as the public is disappearing, we need to expand the space for public conversation. And people have done remarkable things. One of the things Bernadine did that kind of blew my mind is she leafleted our neighborhood, and we had 40 people over for brunch on a Saturday shortly after the inauguration. And we didn't do much, we just went around and said what each of us was involved in. These are people we don't know. I mean, we see them every day for 30 years, but we know their dogs better than we know them. And, and it was kind of neat to have a conversation where people talked about what they were doing in their church or their synagogue. People talked about issues they were concerned about, and we kept meeting. That's a simple example of expanding the public space, of looking toward a possible future. But I think the world that we're living in now, the moment we're living in, is a moment that demands movement building. And movement building involves two steps every time that we all ought to be taking. One is we have to dive into the issues we care about, whatever issue you care about, and reframe the issue, somehow rethink it so that we're not simply doing what's taken for granted. So if you care about women's rights or queer rights or or international human rights, or immigration, or Black Lives Matter, whatever you're involved in, keep turning the issue and making sure 
that it says what you believe it ought to say. Then you need to connect the issue to every other issue. So war connects to warming. Black Lives Matter connects to decent education and the, and the, um, and the demilitarizing of the police. It connects to both. So it's both reframing and connecting the issues, and that's what will lead, I think, ultimately, to a mighty, unstoppable you know, social movement. Because the moment we live in, if I could, I'll give you one quick example, and then I really do want to have some conversation, because it was called the community conversation. But you know, I, I look at something like the Paris, the Paris Climate Accord. The Paris Climate Accord is the most far-reaching international agreement ever reached on climate. It's unbelievable victory for the international community to come to that. And simultaneously, if every benchmark were met in the Paris Climate Agreement, we would still be screwed in 20 years. That's the contradiction. So another way of saying it more generally is that the, the, the demands, the needs that we must that we must meet are absolutely in contradiction with what's politically possible. So how do you change that equation? How do you make the impossible possible? And that's where it comes the question of organizing, of talking to strangers, of learning to get out of your comfort zone and have a conversation. And yes, get beat down and get depressed and then keep trying. I mean, one of the great things about being involved in a, so a movement for justice is that it, 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 it can be wearing, but it also can give you enormous energy to be with other people, making sacrifices, trying, finding, you know, finding um, fellowship in the attempt. One quick example, and I don't think, incidentally, struggling for social justice always is based on, on an equation of victory. It's not always based on an equation of winning. It's sometimes based on an equation of wanting to define, wanting to make your identity on the basis of what you stand up for and what you stand up against. So 30 years ago, was it 30 years ago? Close to 30 years ago, the state of Illinois reinstated the death penalty. And in their wisdom, they decided to murder John Wayne Gacy, who was the poster, do you know who that is? John Wayne Gacy, a mass murderer, a real, he killed young gay people on the north side of Chicago, buried him in his backyard. A real, real terrible person. But as the execution date drew nearer, the kind of glee with which the media was meeting this, this moment drove Bernie and me nuts. So we drew straws, and we had three little kids at the time, and I won. So I got to drive down to Statesville to stand outside the prison with my little thou shalt not kill sign, and she put the kids to bed. Um, I got down there at about 10.30 at night, and I was met with a, a, a beer party, a beer and rock and roll party. 2,000 young people celebrating the murder of the monster, right? And I was so horrified. I was so taken aback. But I put my little sign under my shirt because I didn't want to get killed. And I went to the front of the prison, and there I found nine elderly nuns, two lawyers, and me. And we stood there with our little candles, objecting to the killing of John Wayne Gacy. So. I went home that night feeling marginal. I, I often feel marginal in those kind of situations, but I felt particularly marginal that night. Two years later, one of the lawyers standing next to me won the first wrongful conviction suit. Two years late after that, our Republican, mildly corrupt governor who went from the governorship to prison, but 
you know Illinois, that's the career path. That's what everybody does. Um, but George Bryan, my favorite Illinois governor, um, uh, commuted the, the, the death sentences and got people off death row, closed death row. And Illinois became a leader in the country against the death penalty. No one could have predicted it when we were down there that night. I wasn't a part of that movement. But that's just, you know, to me, you have to take certain stands because it, it affirms your humanity. And you don't know. Because history has surprised us before, and history will surprise us again. And we could be the agents of that surprise if we're willing. Thank you, sir. All right. Yeah. Thank you. So who'd like to ask a question? Or make a statement. Or make a statement. Yes. Uh, thanks. Um, my question is, with regard to the current moment, what do you think is the most relevant historical analog, specifically as an example of successful multiracial organizing? I think sort of the holy grail now is how do you bring folks together that are being good at part you can repeat it. Yeah, so the, the question is, what, in regards to our current moment, is the best historical analog about multiracial uh, organizing to make change? You know, I'm not sure I have a great historical analog. I can point to uh, the struggle in South Africa, certainly the fight against apartheid, the labor movement in the 30s in some ways, um, the abolitionist movement in other ways. But I'm not sure I have a great historical analog, but I think what you're pointing to is absolutely essential. That is that we find ways to take the movements that are on the ground, and no one should think that we're starting from zero. If you look, I mean, I'm, I feel very fortunate to live in Chicago. I know a lot of people think, really? Yes, I really do. Um, and, and I feel sorry for folks who don't live in Chicago, but um, <laughs> that's just me. Um, but but I, I say I'm fortunate for a couple reasons. One is because People say, well, how do we build a movement against Trump, or how do we build a progressive movement? We are witnessing right now in Chicago and elsewhere the latest iteration of the centuries-old struggle for black freedom. And it's an exciting moment for Black Youth Project 100, for Black Lives Matter, for the movement for all black lives. This is an incredible moment. And it's not so distant. You can find it. It's within reach. So find it and be a part of it. People say, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, how do I be an ally to that movement? And I think ally is kind of the wrong word, because an ally implies I'll help lift you up. It has a certain condescension built into it. I want to say, I guess first I would say if you want to be a part of the movement that's already happening, the first requirement is that you listen, that you, that you listen hard, that you don't think you know everything, but you go and listen to the young people. So I get asked in Chicago, a reporter asked me the other day, are you mentoring the Black Lives Matter kids? I'm like, dude, they're mentoring me. You know, I'm learning from them, and that's always the way it is. When we were kids in, in the civil rights movement, you know, we were teaching the old people. It wasn't the other way around. So I'm happy to be a follower and a listener. But the other thing is, the reason I think ally is not quite the right word is because what we want to be is in solidarity with, not in service to. So actually, I think many of you, many of you who are men in this room, know that you would have a better life if women were equal, if women's liberation were a fact on the ground. Men's lives would be better. James Baldwin was the first person who made this point that I was aware of. Um, 
that I understood when he said, for white people to be free, they ha black people have to be free. And it will free you up from the agony and the precariousness of being white. What a great idea, you know, that, that I don't want to live in a white supremacist society. I don't want to live in a male supremacist society. And because I don't want to, I want to be a fellow revolutionary with the Black Lives Matter kids. I don't want to be uh, an ally who's helping them. You know, I don't want to just make bail for them. I want to be with them. So that's one thing. But, but the second thing about being in Chicago is this is where the immigrant rights movement started. You remember 10 years ago when the marches happened and suddenly in the pages of the New York Times, people were being interviewed who said, you know, my name is Juan Gonzalez and I own a cleaning business and I've been here illegally for 25 years. His name is in the New York Times. I mean, people were suddenly coming out, 12 million people. So that great march that happened 10 years ago, which we were on, you know, it started in the west side of Chicago. It marched down Randolph Street, and then it made a detour so that it could go by the Haymarket statue. You know what the Haymarket, remember what the Haymarket is? That's where the eight-hour day was, um, was fought for and won in 1886. And the Haymarket was, a, that the Haymarket so-called riot, the police riot at Haymarket, was actually immigrant workers fighting for the eight-hour day, fighting for the rights of workers. So the Immigrant Rights March decided they had to take a little detour to pay homage to something that happened 100 and some years ago. So I think that the immigrant, the undocumented and unafraid in Chicago, Black Youth Project 100, the Fight for 15, all of these movements are already happening. Then the question is, how do we get together? And again, I'm so, on Sunday I'm going to uh, the next meeting of a group called, we, they're called the three R's, Resist, Reimagine, and Rebuild. And this is an attempt of 36 organizations to hammer out a common program, a common view of what we're fighting for, so that the Black Lives Matter folks have in their program a, a plank about peace, and so that the peace folks have in their work an understanding of the necessity of seeing the world through the lens of, of, of the, the bloody heritage of black oppression, and so on. It's so exciting to be at a meeting with 36 organizations trying to hammer out what we really believe. You can do that in Seattle. You have all the, the, the tools to do it, and a place like this could be a center where it could be done. So those are the kind of things. I'm not helping you with the historical analog, and maybe somebody else can help us with that, but I think that's, that's how I, think of it. I think that we need to think about how to build unity in a way that understands the particularity of each movement as it moves forward. You could follow up if you want, but yeah. I wonder if you could uh, speak to um, this particular complexity in the struggle, the African-American struggle. So um, beginning with slavery, African, uh, African slaves were prohibited from learning how to read. And throughout the struggle, um, uh, uh, black communities have been disenfranchised from access to education in, in, in many ways. And that education isn't just about book learning, but it's also about access to information. And so now you have a, a scenario where a lot of, um, a lot of the uh, kind of, I guess, uh, peaceful uh, components of that disenfranchisement have been somewhat uh, solved. I'll give you some examples. Uh, if you're poor enough, community college is free. Uh, and then if you do well, you can, 
you can transfer from there to uh, USC or Yale or, or Harvard or wherever you want to go. Um, if you um, do well there, you can go on and get a PhD and they'll pay you to do it. And so the access to education uh, situation is, is sort of solved. If you're in California um, and your kid goes to an underperforming school, uh, by state law, you can take them out of the underperforming school and put them into any school in the district, which means you can go from Lock High or something like that in, in South Central to Hollywood High, which performs really well. Uh, if you know about NACA, you can get a zero down loan at, at better than market rate interest and buy a home. You don't have to be a first-timer to do that. So a lot of these, a lot of points are, are sort of solved in some ways, but there seems to be a lack of access. Most of the things that I that I just mentioned, most people don't know about. And so while we're fighting for people who are being strangled to death for selling cigarettes or, or shot in the back um, and left bleeding on the ground, um, there are, there are um, there's a, this lack of, of knowledge or lack of access to the information seems to be almost the, like the secret weapon because um, you, know, you, could, you could have uh, reparations for, for slaves in the form of a check, and they'll say, all you, have, all you have to do is go to this website and sign up, and no one would even know it's there. They would never sign up. And so you know, could you, if you could just kind of speak to the, the idea of, of not just um, you know, how, how uh, we deal with the, the physical uh, violence and you know, some of the uh, you know, more uh, uh, visible issues, but you know, some of those kind of background lack of access issues and things like that that sort of keep uh, black and brown people um, from, you know, from accessing the things that are actually there. Yeah, I mean, first, your premise that education is critical, I couldn't agree with more. I am, I am a teacher, I'm an educator, and frankly, I think the two kind of things I've pursued in my adult life, starting when I was about 18, have been community organizing and teaching, and frankly, I think they're the same thing. I think a good community organizer knocks on the door and assumes that there's an intelligent, three-dimensional person on the other side, a good teacher, the same thing. We look out in our classrooms and we assume an intelligence that it's our job to unlock and to connect to. It's not, we don't assume just a, a, you know, a room full of deficits. So I think that education is absolutely key and education is not just something that takes place in schools. It's something that, um, you know, it's funny. I, w I became a teacher, I was arrested in 1965 in a draft court destroying draft files and I went to jail. And I walked, I met a teacher in the jail. We were in the same um, struggle. And I went out of jail into my first teaching job. So for me, it's, all, it's not true for everybody who's a teacher, but for me, the question of social justice and the question of education have been linked from the beginning. So it, I don't see any, any difference. I think um, living and learning are the same thing. I think democracy and education are the same thing. And so I agree with you on that. Um, I think the question of access is absolutely central, and I don't think the question of access has been solved, and you kind of said that glancingly at one point, but I don't think it's been solved at all, and it's partly lack of information, but it's partly also people's life circumstances. You know, people talk about poor people floating along on a cloud of real ignorance. I mean, we, you know, we drive through the city and we see poor people, but when was the last time you had a poor person into your house for dinner? Um, when was the last time a homeless person came to your house for dinner or you went 
to the home of a homeless person. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but you, you know what I mean. What, what, what's the intimate knowledge we have of, of, of the lives of others? And I say that partly because it's very hard to be poor. It takes a lot of energy to get through the day, and people don't really understand that or recognize that. But I'm going to talk about the Chicago public schools for a moment, which are a catastrophe. And um, my, my grand, my, I have two granddaughters, 13 and 10, and they attended Chicago public schools until last year. Four years ago, they got rid of the art teacher, austerity, you know, we're broke. Broke on purpose is what we say in response, but okay, we're broke, can't have the art teacher. Three years ago, they got rid of the music teacher. It is a neat little nice neighborhood school. Two years ago, they closed the library. There's no counselor, there's no nurse, there's no librarian, there's no music teacher, there's no art teacher. And last year they were told they had to bring their own toilet paper to school. In the richest country, in one of the richest cities in that country, my granddaughters are asked to bring their own toilet paper. The message is loud and clear. The message is, if you can get out, get out. Well, my kids could get out, so they got out. You can move to the suburbs, you can go to private school, you can go to Catholic school, whatever you want to do. But the message is, we do not respect you. We do not respect your humanity, and we're pushing you away. So if you are in a neighborhood, and you go to a Chicago public school, and your parents, or your single parent, or whatever, doesn't have the wherewithal to find alternatives, you're stuck in an apartheid system of education. And Chicago is an apartheid system of education, and the message is, we don't care about you. That's a very serious message. And I'll tell you why I get pissed off if I'm not paying attention. If I'm not pissed off, I'm not paying attention. Um, I'm pissed off because Arnie Duncan, who I used to know quite well, I haven't known him for a while, but Arnie Duncan, you may know, was, this, was the Secretary of Education for eight years. Before that, he was the superintendent, or since it's a business now, we call him the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools for four years. For, so for 12 years, he's been telling us and being the architect of the schools we need. Drill and kill, test till you bleed, you know, this is Arnie Duncan, right? Privatize, all these things, and I could go into it in much greater detail. But here's the important point. Arnie Duncan comes back to Chicago after eight years in Washington. He can't find a single public school to send his kids to. So he sends his kids to the University of Chicago Lab School, where the mayor's kids go, where Mayor Daley's kids go, where Barack Obama's kids went, where um, Arnie Duncan himself went for 12 years. How is that possible? And so my response to that is to say, whatever the most privileged and, and wisest parents have for their children should be the baseline that we as a community in a democracy want for all of our children. So what do they find at the lab school? A class size capped at 15 a curriculum based in part in the interests of the children, a unionized teacher corps. Nobody beats the shit out of the University of Chicago teacher, uh, you know, lab school teachers union. It's a union. And, what, and they, they go on strike sometimes. They go on strike around working conditions. Why do they do that? Because good working conditions are good teaching conditions. Good teaching conditions are good learning conditions. That's what they argue. Well, if it's good enough for Arnie's kids, why is it good enough for your kids or my kids? And that, it seems to me, is something that we ought to be organizing around, and we are organizing around in Chicago. We want a full arts program. We want, we want fine arts, and we want drama, we want music, just like they have at the lab school. We don't want any more than what Arnie has. We want exactly what he has. And it seems to me that's the kind of thing we ought to fight for. One last word on education. 
So you can, you can uh, Google Black Youth Project 100 or Black Lives Matter or you know, the Movement for Black Lives and get their programs. And they're very comprehensive. And education is a central part of the program. So in Chicago, where the mayor in his wisdom closed 50 schools, meanwhile he sends his kids, as I said, to the lab school, closed 50 schools in black neighborhoods. They were underutilized. His kids go to a school where the class size is capped at 15. Are they underutilized? I mean, you know, meanwhile, the second grade right down the road has 40 kids in a second grade class. This is apartheid education. We should be absolutely outraged by it. But you should look up BYP 100 or, or any of these groups and see what their education platform is. But from my experience, going back to kind of um, the historical analog, I have one historical analog around education, which is, in my experience, the most exciting educational development that I was blessed to be a part of was the Freedom School movement in the South, the Mississippi Freedom School, and you can Google that too. 1964 Mississippi Freedom School curriculum. This is a curriculum that was developed at a point, I know for those of you who are young, the Civil Rights Movement is a story about you know, continual uplift. It didn't happen like that at all. It was always like this. And 1962, 63, 64, the movement was, was at a loss. And a young man named Charlie Cobb, who was part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating <coughs> wrote a proposal. It wasn't a proposal to the MacArthur Foundation or the Department of Education. It was a proposal to his pals, to his comrades, to his colleagues. And it was a proposal that was just a mimeograph sheet. And if you don't know what a mimeograph sheet is, you can Google that too. Um, but, but it was just a, just a copy that he had made. And, and what it said was, um, the children of Mississippi have been denied many things. Decent facilities, forward-looking curriculum, fully trained teachers. But the fundamental injury is that the, children, the black children of Mississippi have been denied the right to think for themselves about the circumstances of their lives and how they might be otherwise. That's the key phrase in Charlie's proposal. They've been denied the right to think for themselves about the circumstances of their lives and how they might be otherwise. Sounds pretty cool, but kind of innocuous. Until you think about Mississippi, feudal Mississippi in 1963, three of the martyrs of Mississippi, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, were Freedom School teachers, and they were investigating the arson bombing of Freedom School when they were picked up by the police and lynched. So, it was a revolutionary statement then, and it's a revolutionary statement now. The people of the west side of Chicago, the children of the west side of Chicago, have been denied many things. But the basic problem is they've been denied the right to say, this is the circumstances of my life. This is how it ought to change. That's revolutionary. The, 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 the Freedom School curriculum goes on. It's 24 pages of questions. And it begins, why are you and I in the freedom movement? What do we hope to accomplish? What does the majority culture have that we want? What do we have that we want to, to maintain? That is a very powerful way of getting people to think about the circumstances of their lives. It's not saying, here's a curriculum, this is the shit you want to learn in order to be a functioning person. It's saying, take control of, your, of yourself and notice the one thing that the ruling powers never want you to notice. You have agency. You have agency. You can do things. And you know, sometimes I think the powerful always think that they are people with agency, history, culture, you know, self-reflection. But the rest of us can be written off by our statistical profiles, age, name, you know, zip code, level of education. That's how we're talked about. 
but they talk about themselves as people of agency. We have to flip that and say, we are people of agency, and the students we educate, the key lesson is you have agency. In fact, sometimes I think, as soon as I stand up in front of my class and say, okay, let's get started, I already lost. I already, I already messed up. Because actually, what I want to say to them is, I can't teach you anything. But you can seize an education, and I'm happy to go along with you. I'm happy to be in dialogue with you. But if, I, if, if you think you're going to sit there passively, and I'm going to educate you, and in the kind of, the kind of um, weird individualistic society we've become, students will literally say to professors, I paid for this lecture. Give it to me, you know? I mean, what? You know, yeah, um, I mean, education, and this is Arnie Duncan. Part of the reason Arnie Duncan can't be a good opposition to Betsy DeVos, or put it more broadly, the Democrats can't lead the opposition to the Republicans because for three or four decades they've been on the same path. Arnie Duncan also acted as if education is a product to be sold at the marketplace. Now, Betsy DeVos is a monster, don't be mistaken, but Arnie Duncan paved the way. He said education is a product, not a human right. I say education is a human right, and it's a process, and it's lifelong and endless. I will not concede that it's like a refrigerator or a bar of soap that you buy at the marketplace. It's not. It's different in quality and kind. So if I'm thinking about what kind of education I want to put forward now, I want to say, let's look to the 1964 Freedom School curriculum as an example of a curriculum of questioning, a curriculum of agency. I'll give you one last example. I know I'm, I'm going on, but um, as my son said, you get paid by the word. Okay, um, but one last example. Anything can be turned into a freedom school curriculum. So you know who Governor Huckabee was? You know Sarah Huckabee's father? He was the governor of Arkansas, and he weighed an enormous, he was an enormously large guy. I think he weighed 370 pounds or something. And he lost a ton of weight when he decided to run for president. And, and he became a kind of poster child for dramatic weight loss and kind of a spokesman against childhood obesity, to his credit. I mean, that's a good thing. But you may not know this, that in Arkansas, when Huckabee was governor, they put in every kid's report card your body mass index. Imagine going home and having an A in English, a B in history, a C in mathematics, and you're fat. I mean, what, what do you do with that? I mean, how, how do you respond to that? So I had a friend who was teaching in Arkansas High School, and he decided to do a freedom school curriculum turn on that mandate. And what he did is he said, let's ask a series of questions. What's the history of these kinds of mandates being put into you know, high schools in terms of changing behavior? How are we doing with the drug awareness or the pregnancy awareness curriculum? So that's one question. What's the state of physical education in Arkansas schools? What's the state of our sports programs? What's the state of our, what, around our high schools in Little Rock, for example, um, are there food deserts? Are there opportunities to get real good food and fresh food and so on? So they did the exact same thing. They just began to interrogate the reality. That's, that's the kind of education kids need, an education that unlocks their curiosity and pursues their agency. I want to be a little unfair yeah. and ask you to respond to something uh, that Arnie Duncan said in a room not very much unlike this. 2008, his last year in the Chicago schools, I had a chance to ask him a question about the most important issue on his reform agenda. 
And he said, most important issue is this year, 53 students in Chicago public schools died from gun violence. That's my number one issue. I'm only raising that as a, as a point of nuance, but how do you address the context for someone like Duncan as a school leader? Well, you know, the problem with Duncan's, that statement, I asked Duncan, he came to the American Educational Research Association, and I stood up, and we know each other very well. I got a little too close to him. His bodyguards moved on me. He said, don't worry, don't worry. I know him. It's Bill. Um, he won't hurt me. Um, but but I, I asked him, is there anything in your, in your experience at the University of Chicago that's relevant to your leadership of the Chicago Public Schools? And he said, it's apples and oranges. Really? Really? It's apples and oranges? He was asked about the racial disparity in the kind of um, magnet schools and the regular neighborhood schools, and he said, that's a housing problem. Bullshit, you know, you're just not willing to face reality. So here's the problem with Duncan and the gun violence. Gun violence is a scourge in Chicago, and it is a serious, serious problem. And if you go and read the Black Lives Matter program or the BYP 100 program, you'll see that what they're doing is equating education and jobs with violence. They're saying, don't spend 40% of the Chicago budget on policing, Spend it on education, and then the policing will begin to, you know, not take care of itself exactly, but we'll begin to have a conversation. So I had mentioned a minute ago about closing 50 schools. The BYP 100 kids are leading a struggle against building a $40 million police academy. $40 million for a police academy, but we're broke when it comes to schools for you guys. That's ridiculous. So here's the problem with Duncan and pointing to the gun violence. They talked about kids, kids being killed in Chicago, and it is an absolute scourge and an absolute disaster, and the, the causes are many. But what they wanted was to end the, the violence in the schools. So I live right next to Kenwood High School. We had two killings over the last five years, two blocks away from Kenwood High School, and they don't count as school killings, but they are school killings. You know, So the violence is, to say we're going to have metal detectors in the school makes a certain kind of sense, but wouldn't it be smarter to say we're going to solve this problem as a community? We're not going to make the school the only safe place, and as soon as you leave, you get whacked. So that's part of my problem with, with Arnie's solution to this. Um, there are solutions, but I don't think Arnie was on to it. Yes? I'm just wondering, isn't one way to get a community or a city as large as Seattle even um, by getting signs out and people to march. Like the women's march was so successful because we had the people, I guess, that knew how to organize and um, get it going. But I just feel like in Seattle, um, there was an article in Sunday's Parade, I think it was or Pacific Magazine in some paper, saying how some people really felt um, emboldened and, um, what's the word I want, comforted by the signage that's going up with Black Lives Matter. And so it starts neighborhoods talking, and if we yeah. can get signage up and get people um, willing to march, and yeah. I'm not exactly sure how to go about that, but we certainly have a sign in our yard, and it had it torn down and had notes put on it. Well, what, did the sign, what did the sign say? Oh, it says, in this house, Black Lives Matter, and then Sweet. it goes on with the other few other things. I have a so. big Black Lives Matter sign. We live on 50th Street in the south side of Chicago, and I have a sign right in the front window. And I have a friend who's a cop in the neighborhood, and he, I ran into him at the coffee shop, and he said, you know, Bill, that sign simply means if you call the cops, we're not coming. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think, I think it, look, I, I don't know whether signs or marches, you know, I, I think we need to mobilize people. I don't have a tactical 
answer. So I don't know whether we should have a march next week or we should do that. I actually think the Women's March was remarkable partly in, in, in that it was so spontaneous that actually it didn't have great seasoned organizers who knew how to organize a national march, but they did it and people came and they came because they were you know, pissed off and paying attention. But I don't know, I mean, I think the one thing I am certain of is that it's not enough to be a good person sitting on your couch smoking a joint. I actually approve of sitting on your couch and smoking a joint, I recommend it. But it's not the same as standing up in the public square. And when you put a sign in your yard, you have just become public with your morality, with your politics. You can, it's not enough to be a good person all alone. This is one of the bones I used to have to pick with my mother and with others, you know. You know, um, people always say, you know, Martin Luther King, nonviolence, but what they forget to say is nonviolent direct action. He wasn't nonviolent in the sense that he was sitting here, not hurting people. That wasn't the sense at all. Nonviolent direct action means expressing yourself in the public square. And you can do it in any number of ways. People can write letters, people can have a study group, people can have a community forum. I'll give you two quick examples. After Trump's election, people mobilized themselves in the most remarkable way. So I told you about my partner mobilizing our neighborhood, which I thought was kind of extraordinary and kind of embarrassing. I loved it. Um, but there's a film, uh, a cinema guild in Chicago called Facets Multimedia, run by an extraordinary guy named Milos Stelic. And, and they, have a, they show independent films, and they rent films, it's a, and they teach kids how to make films. It's just great. Milos called me right after the election. He said, we're going to do, for the next year, we're going to do once a month a film about authoritarianism or totalitarianism and have a teach-in afterwards. And he got a group of writers. I was the, the first, I think. I did 1984. Somebody else did A Handmaid's Tale. Somebody else did Fahrenheit 451. But what he's doing is he's showing one totalitarian film a month and having a conversation. So in a sense, Milos isn't leaving his lane. He's not leaving what he does, but he's doing it with an eye towards creating a public that can respond to what we're facing. I think that's creative genius. Um, Alexander Hemmen, who some of you know, the great Chicago writer who wrote Nowhere Man and a bunch of other books and one of MacArthur a couple of years ago. Uh, uh, Sasha started a, a conversation group at Women and Children First Bookstore. Once a month, they take an issue, and they, it's not about a book, and they have three or four people um, on a panel talking with a group about an issue. So last week, the issue was justice, and my wife is on the panel. And that's the kind of thing that, again, Sasha just decided he had to start this. So glancing off of Sasha, I have a, I have a book event that I do at 57th Street Bookstore on the south side which is kind of a destination bookstore, like, what do you have here, Elliott Bay? Something like that? Yeah, it's like, it's like that. And I've had a thing there for a long time where I host authors in a, in a series called Fresh Airs. And I'll tell you how we got the name real quickly. Uh, Rick Perlstein ran it for a long time, and they called it Rickopedia. And they couldn't find anybody of Rick's intellectual heft, so they decided to go with the pun. So it's called Fresh Airs. Uh, in any case, I argued to the people at 57th Street that we ought to do something like Women and Children First were doing. So we're starting an event where four, four Chicago authors, once a month, are going to lead a discussion about what happened that month in the political arena. And we're calling it Singing in Dark Times, from the great poem by uh, Bertolt Brecht, 
which says, in the dark times, will there be singing? And the response is, yes, there will be singing, singing about the dark times. So we're going to start a discussion group called Singing in Dark Times. First one is December 12th. If you're in Chicago, come on over. Um, but, but I think those are the kind of things where people are, are consciously saying, let's expand the public. You're saying a sign in the yard. Exactly. Maybe a march. Maybe a letter writing campaign. I would avoid, however, I would avoid putting all your eggs in the electoral basket. Not because elections are bad. I vote. Um, you know, I'm from Chicago. I vote often and early, and you know, we vote the graveyards and so on. But I think we ought to participate in that world. But I think I, I go back to what I said earlier. You know, about about um, what really changes things. We have to be concerned about building about mobilizing ourselves as workers, as people, as citizens, as community members. And we have to remember that in the 5,000 year history of states, 5,000 years of state history, it's only in the last 200 that states have had anything to do with furthering human freedom. And then only when there's fire from below. Never when there's not fire from below. The American Revolution, abolitionism, civil rights, you know, the women's movement. It's only fire from below, and then the state can do some things, but not if it doesn't have the fire from below. So that's what, I think you're absolutely right. The sign is great. Think of a million, a thousand other things we can do, and we're on the right road. Yeah. Trump's point about So we're, we're getting sucked into this Democratic Party thing, and 
they're never going to help working people. They are. Well, you're, yeah, I agree with you a lot, but I want to challenge a couple things. I agree with you a lot. If you ask the question, why didn't Obama, since he had a filibuster, why, why didn't he uh, go for universal health care? And the answer is there was no movement for universal health care among us. Where were we? And I said at the time, you know, Obama ran for president, and, and there's a one, underneath what you're saying, I, I feel there might be one problem, which is when Obama ran for president, and he said as clearly as he could say, and I knew him, and I know this to be the fact, he said, I'm a middle-of-the-road, pragmatic politician. He could have said, highly ambitious. In fact, when I first knew Barack, I used to say to Bernadine, God, that guy is really ambitious. I think he wants to be mayor of Chicago. Boy, that's, a, that's the horizon of my imagination. Um, but, but, okay, so Barack, um, Barack said, I'm a middle-of-the-road pragmatic politician. The right wing looked at him and said, no, he's a secret Muslim who has a black nationalist preacher and a terrorist friend, and he hangs out with Palestinians, and, you know, and, and that's what the right wing said. And the liberals and the left wing said, I think he's winking at me. But he wasn't winking. He was actually a middle-of-the-road pragmatic politician. And one of the things that Barack brought to the White House was a background of community organizing. You may remember that he said, if you want universal health care, build a movement. And frankly, he's absolutely right about that. The idea that Barack would save us, I hope many of you have been disillusioned with that. The question, and I, I said this in 2008, Barack can't save us, but with any luck, we can save him. But of course, we can only save him so much. You remember the people, I had talked about Johnson and Roosevelt and Lincoln, but you know, the people who didn't shut up and didn't go into the closet from 2008 and 2012 are the people who made advances, and that includes the immigrant rights kids, and it includes the queer movement. You know, you remember how this evolved where, where uh, Dan Savage showed, uh, showed up at the White House where Barack was saying, as a Christian, I can't support same-sex marriage, but, you know, I'm evolving. And Dan Savage had a big button that said, evolve already. And he showed up at the White House. I love that. And, and then big mouth Joe Biden said he was for same-sex marriage equality. And two days later, Arne Duncan came out. For, and I was speaking at a teacher conference, and I said, Arnie Duncan hates us teachers, but he likes gay people, so let's get married. And then we can, you know, he might like us a little. Um, and then a week later, Obama. So what happened? The gay movement never shut up, and they never turned back. That's what we have to do. If we want universal health care, and I do, then I think we have to build the kind of movement that says this is essential. If we want free higher education, and I do, then we have to build that. So the one thing I would caution you about is that Bernie Sanders is no more of a savior than Barack Obama, no more of a savior to us. We could save Bernie, he can't save us, and that's the way it always works. So Bernie Sanders is a good, I think he's a decent person, I think he's an honest person. Here's an interesting fact. Bernadine, my wife, I'm not supposed to say that, Bernadine um, graduated from the University of Chicago with Bernie Sanders, and she was, you know, he was a civil rights activist, and, she was very much a follower of his when she was a, an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. And then she uh, graduated from the law school with John Ashcroft. So it's kind of between heaven and hell, you know, it's like crazy. But, but the fact is that Bernie, one of the things to note about the Bernie campaign, which I think was so interesting, is that the first time he was asked about Black Lives Matter, he said, all lives matter. Do you remember that? It was on NPR. It's all lives matter. And then, you know, 
Killer Mike and Cornell West and some people got to him and the BYP kids got to him and he got better. And that's to his credit, he learned. That's good, but that's how it works. We have to be the ones who are demanding of ourselves. We're not looking for the perfect person who will save us. We're looking to build the kind of energy and the kind of wisdom from the ground that we can't be denied. And that's a very different way of thinking of electropolitics. I don't want to put down electropolitics. And if you're in electropolitics, one of the things you should be fighting for is universal suffrage, you should, you know, which is the, the end of kind of um, you know, disenfranchisement, which is massive and going on everywhere. We have to fight for universal suffrage. And you know, I'm, I've advocated for most of my adult life that kids should vote. And that's really wacky. You know? um, and people say, kids, they just vote the way their parents did. Remember, that's what they said about women. They said if women vote, they'll just vote the way their husbands vote. But the, the reality is that, that we should be fighting in those arenas. But we, the, we cannot let go of the fact that our main responsibility is to ourselves and our neighbors. We have the wisdom. Wisdom on the ground, fire from below. That's what we have access to. We don't have access to the White House or the medieval auction block called the Congress or the Pentagon. We have access to the neighborhood, the school. We have absolute access. Why are we not using that access and obsessing about the access we don't have? We've got to use the access we have. So uh, I'm going to ask you for a final, final comment in a minute. Huh. I'm going to get to show you some love in a minute. I've got two or three quick commercials to share okay. before we do that. Number one, tomorrow night, up at our campus, at the Northeastern University campus in South Lincoln, we've got Walter Olson, who is a conservative Cato Institute senior fellow, coming up to have a conversation. And really, late tonight, when our two house guests are sharing some wine with us, we're going to put it to the test, Bill's desire to be open-hearted with people he disagrees with. I can't wait. I hope we have a joint. Uh, never mind. I don't know. Is it legal? It's legal here, right? Is it legal here? You guys are so advanced. It's not legal in Illinois. I asked my doctor. It's now become legal for um, um, doctor, you know, medical reasons. So I asked my primary if he could write me a script, and he said, "I'm just uncomfortable because you don't fit any of the criteria." But I mean, I'll do it if you want me to. But I'm uncomfortable. So I said, "Don't worry about it." I have my brothers in California. He's got a card. My sons all have cards, so I'll be fine. I have my own dealers in the family. But it's so cool to be in Seattle where it's legal. That's it is great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so tomorrow, Walter Olson, 
I'm often accused of being romantic and utopian, and it's true. Um, but, uh, but the great revolutionary from Uruguay, Eduardo Galeano, had, had a wonderful response to that. People said to him, kind of accusingly, you're a utopian. And he said, you know, it's true. I see utopia on the horizon. I walk two steps toward it, and it walks two steps the other way. So I walk 10 steps towards utopia. It walks 10 steps the other way. So what good is utopia? And the answer is, it's good for walking. And it seems to me that's exactly right, that we ought to be walking toward utopia, linking arms, finding a collective that we can be part of, because otherwise we can't bring about the world we need. And the urgency is so, so profound today that we better get busy. Be a mensch, rise up, demand the impossible, and thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Excuse me, what is the symbol of your tattoo? In your, your this right here? Yes. So the question was my, tat my hand tattoo. I'll tell you two quick stories. First, I got this last year. I'm 73 years old, so I got it as an old man. My wife is 75. She has one on this hand. We were helping a young Venezuelan artist get her artist visa. We introduced her to a bunch of people. She got it. She lived with us for six months, and we wouldn't take money from her. So she came down one morning, and she designed this Argentinian tattoo. So I said, sure, put it on. I saw my brother a couple days later, and he said, you know, you're never going to get a job. And I said, good, I don't want a fucking job. And, and my wife was actually in a coffee shop a few months ago, and the barista, who was highly tattooed and pierced and hair dyed, said to her, God, I love that tattoo. You know, there's a guy who comes in here you ought to meet. And she said, yeah, I met him 50 years ago. And then she thought, you know, old people with hand tattoos ought to hook up. You know? That's it for this extra from Speakers Forum. This event featuring Bill Ayers, hosted by Northeastern University Seattle, took place at Impact Hub Seattle in Pioneer Square on November 1st. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.